Hi, my name is David Speed. And I'm Adam Brazier. And this is the Creative Rebels podcast. Featuring inspirational stories and practical advice from some of the most prolific and successful creators in the world. Adam and I have co-founded multiple creative businesses and turned our varied passions into our careers. There's never been a better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people will tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to show you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels. Hello. How are you this week? I've been in such a good mood, I don't know why. You do seem quite chipper. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just feeling good about everything at the moment. That's good. Yeah, we've had some good meetings today, haven't we? So it seems yeah. like everything's moving in quite positive directions. Yeah, lots. Um, yeah, so a lot's going on with our businesses at the moment. Um, we have had like a crazy January and February because normally those typically those are our like least busy times of the year and it's normally like a struggle and we have to like we have to save money up beforehand like because yeah January and February because we've got a graffiti company it's painting outside a lot of the time like we do do office murals and things that are inside too but I think a lot of people don't think graffiti when it's cold and I think also like everyone's just worried about Christmas and and they're not thinking about running a big marketing campaign or anything like that it's like their campaigns for Christmas were already planned in like August, September. So yeah. um, so we, we'll typically do a lot of work for Christmas during December, but then there's nothing planned for January, February. But this year it has been ridiculous. Yeah. And so a lot of the pitches that we were putting together in November, October, they've kind of come to fruition through the last couple of months. Yeah. So yeah, it's been it's been hectic. It's, it's one of those ones, isn't it, where we knew that we were going to be dead for January, February. So we do always pre-plan for those times. But this year, well, last year, we were a lot more proactive in looking for those those contracts in November, October, because we knew how long they were going to take to come to fruition. So it was like actively going after those through that period so that we knew that we'd have stuff lined up because a lot of the work that we pitch for doesn't actually come to fruition, but we knew that if we pitch for enough, some of it would, and then that would keep us busy through this beginning part of the year. Yeah, I think it's really important when you're starting a business to kind of take note of when your clients are coming, because if you're first going into this and you've not worked in the industry before, you don't know what times of the year are going to be busiest and what times are going to be quiet. So do try and document, because I know we didn't in the start so much, and it's kind of only kind of later on when we started to get like finance people involved that really helped us kind of plot how our, how our years looked. So... But we always kind of knew that start of the year was quieter. So it did allow us to save. A lot of businesses do go out of business during those periods because there is just no cash flow and they just can't afford it. So definitely as you get started, always keep a little bit back because you never know what the next month and next two months are going to look like. Yeah, when we spoke to Amanda Palmer, it was really fascinating that that when she was a street performer, she would stand there in the street. People, Someone could come up and give her $100 yeah. and sometimes that would happen and someone could come up and give her $1. And it's completely unpredictable, you would think. Yeah. But she, it wasn't. That's an economy to it. Yeah, she knew that roughly how much she was going to get. And that's kind of, it's, it works the same in business, oddly. When you start looking at your, at your figures and having projections for, for growth and how you're going, you're going to do that is actually the, the longer you're in business, the more you're able to look back and start to notice patterns and, and I suppose the more the more data that you have, the more data points that you have, yeah. the more more accurately that you can plan for the future. As soon as you know you've got a quiet period as well, like we've always done it, that's a great time to update your website, do some new marketing, like think of other things you can do to fill that time that's not work. Like if you've got no work coming in, maybe go and do some free projects for someone else. Like try and just keep busy and keep producing stuff. So when 
the busy period does come again, you don't have to then stress out. You don't have enough time to do the things that you should have done two months ago. Yeah, I uh, totally agree in that. Um, I've just remembered. Um, What's that? We had we had that really interesting DM. So, um, you know, when you think of something and then you're like, and then you find out it's actually a thing and you're like, oh, shit, well, I came up with the idea. I should have acted. Oh, on yeah. It. yeah. yeah. Um, so recently on our episode with Lauren Bravo, you said, wouldn't it be great if there was an app that when you were shopping, you could go past shops and it would tell you oh, like, yeah. how ethical they are and g- could give you that their score? Yeah. Because there's like a food thing called scores on the doors, which like most restaurants will have a score out of five. Like you often see it on the windows outside. And yeah, I was like, oh, it'd be a great idea if fashion shops had that for how sustainable they were. We only got a bloody message where someone's gone and done it. So shout out to at charlottesweb.design on Instagram yeah. and Vitamin London, at Vitamin London, who she works for, who are actually beta testing this beta, beta? It depends if you're English, American. If you're English, it's beta, American's beta. They are beta testing it. You'll probably say beta testing it, won't you, seasons? Oh, God. Currently on our roof, it says Creative Rebels Series 2 out now. Oh, yeah. So I went for a bit of guerrilla marketing. I wrote, um, and some of you guys have seen this. If you live in Shoreditch, a lot of you have sent photos of this. On top of our studio, there's a, a kind of a lift shaft that goes up and gives us a beautiful canvas that we can paint on. And we've written on the front of it, Creative Rebels, and I wrote Series 2 out now. And yeah, when you're away, it's annoying that I was too busy, but I was going to go up and do a little video of just me crossing that out and writing season two. Oh, you should have done that. That <laughs> hilarious. Um, yeah, so shout out to them. That does sound like a, a really cool thing that they're they're testing there. So big ups to them. And on another note, um, we see so many of you guys using the hashtag Creative Rebels and you've got some amazing work up there. And what's really nice to see as well is we've started to notice that the community has started interacting on each other's posts as well yeah for me that's the that's the thing i think I, I love that like i like seeing what what everyone's doing but then when i see because i know the names like billy grand shout out to you this rouse shout out to you i i know when i see those certain names that are popping up when they're liking posts from other people that have used hashtag creative rebels that for me is the like i'm like oh we yeah. build it like it's, like, it's we're working doing yeah, yeah. So when we started this we really wanted you guys to be able to just like help each other out and support each other and show each other like what you're doing and yeah like create a community around it and it seems to be really working so keep using hashtag creative rebels we're checking it out and we've got some exciting news about that coming soon oh yeah we have haven't we oh yeah uh teaser look forward to that (laughs) um right so i'm excited about this episode we got to speak to lizelle yeah this is one of those interesting stories of just like the people you meet will help you meet other people and it's just like you never know who can connect you to who so i got followed by lizelle on instagram and i was like this is crazy because her name's like written in my bathroom with her (laughs) because it's like my girlfriend uses a lot of her projects so i saw that happen i was like oh that's that's interesting so just dropped her a message on instagram and i was like love to offer you a free shoot because i thought that'd be a good connection there photo shoot yeah and then a while later i was just talking to someone who actually interviewed us for graffiti life and she was like, and found out that she actually worked for Liz and she told Liz about my photography and that's where she'd followed me from. So right. it's a really nice little connection of just like someone we met did an interview for, told someone else about our thing and then it all managed to hook up through there. So it's that thing we talk about flags, isn't it? It's yeah. just ev- every piece of content you produce, every person you meet and you tell about the thing that you do, that's that's planting a flag. And I mean, it's just a trip when you, you go onto your Instagram and because you've got to think a year ago like none of you guys knew who we were like this yeah. we were just running our business quietly minding our own business now we're in your ears every week so for us it does blow our minds when someone who's 
been in business for such a long time, like yeah. amazing entrepreneur, um, sold her business, founded a new business, just follows you on Instagram just randomly. You're like, wow, it yeah. just comes from the flag planting. Super cool. And then like, so I went into the shoot of Liz. We had a great time, like got some really cool photos, got on really well. And I was like, do you want to come on the podcast? She's such a positive kind of calm energy yeah. that I get from her. We've got this kind of view of people being really like cutthroat and very like businessy when they're really successful. But it's amazing the amount of people you meet are just so lovely. Like, I, re- I really think like the successful ones though aren't like that. There is definitely that element to business and you can be successful by screwing as many people over as possible. Like although you love to say like oh karma will catch up with them and and bad people don't prosper but like the truth is like they do like there's a lot of people yeah Yeah. a lot of people there's people who've screwed us over in business who are still very much alive and kicking and no karma has kicked their ass but the people that have that pure kind of energy who are are just empathetic and and really giving to to anyone they meet yeah those are the people who are like truly successful. This is a really nice podcast with Liz. Like she's so calming, so kind, so generous with her time. And it just got such a wealth of experience too. After selling our company, Liz could have flown away to the Bahamas and been on the beach sipping Sipping pina coladas. She could have been, but instead (laughs) she decided to throw herself into startup life and she founded Liz Earl Wellbeing. Her company creates content around all areas of wellbeing, including food, health, and beauty and is founded on Liz's passion of how we can all live better lives. In this episode, we talk about growing old gracefully, sipping pina coladas, and loving what you do. You have to be somebody who says, I cannot not do this. I am so beyond driven to do this. It's making such a difference to me, to my customers, to my team. I have to do it, and I will do it at any price almost. Hi Liz. Hello. Welcome to our show. <laughs> it's so nice to be with you guys. It's slightly intimidating because you're across the table looking at me, both of you. <laughs> when was the last time you had a job interview? <laughs> you know, I don't think I've ever had a job interview. Oh. I've always, well, I've always been kind of freelance, self-employed, self-made. I think I did probably have a job interview. I used to wait tables um, at the local hotel uh, when I was at college so I think I must have turned up for an interview for that. Uh, but that is going back a long way in time. I mean, don't worry about us. We're just two idiots. Well, yeah. I, I know I've you're not idiots because a... I've listened to your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Very kind. Yeah, I've never had a proper job. You kind of make it up as you go along. But I think if you... I don't know. I mean, for me, I've just walked through doors as they've opened. And I think that's always been my advice to people as well is to go for opportunities and, and just take them and see where they lead you. And I mean, initially, you, so you started off as a writer. I did, yeah. And everything's kind of gone full circle in a way, yeah. isn't it? Because now you're back. Yeah, back, back, writing, back writing. So I started, um, I went to a hotel management catering college, same one as Jamie Oliver in London. And that was really because I couldn't think of anything else I'd rather do at the time. And it was a very broad course. It's, I mean, it's a great course, actually, because it teaches you everything from a crash course in haute cuisine and food and wine and to the economics of running a hotel. And so there's a lot of you know, accountancy and marketing and um, logistics and all that kind of thing. So I really enjoyed that. And when I was at college, um, I needed to get some, some cash, basically. 
So I had really long hair at the time, and I walked into a little hairdressing salon in South Moulton Street called Moulton Brown, which back then was just a little hairdressing salon. It wasn't this kind of big toiletry brand that it was. Uh, and I said, um, you know, if, can I come in and help you out? Is there anything that you need? And they said, wow, we love your long hair. Let's take some pictures of you covered in hair curlers. And they were creating these crazy fabric hair curlers called Moulton Browners. So I became their Moulton Browner girl. And uh, and ended up then when I left college, they, they said, well, you know, what are you going to do now that you've left college? And I said, well, I'm not really too sure. And they said, well, come and work for us because we're starting to make toiletries and they were make, making things like chamomile shampoo in a bucket in the corridor. And, <laughs> uh, and it was really, it was, you know, Anita Roddick had started with Body Shop and there were all these sort of natural beauty brands and things starting. And I just thought this, this is going to be really fun. So I went there and I stayed there for a few years doing all sorts of different things because it was a young company and, you know, anybody, I'm sure there are lots of people listening, working with startups or young companies, you just get thrown in and you do everything. You know, one minute you're, you know, you're literally cleaning the loos and the next minute you're stacking the shelves and then you're talking to customers or you're creating something or working on some press. And for me, the, I guess the moment then when the penny really dropped for me was when I was in the press office covering for the PR who was away and taking phone calls from journalists who were asking me all these questions about, you know, how do you make the chamomile shampoo and, you know, what are the new season's colours and all of this kind of thing. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, I want to be that person at the other end of the phone asking these questions so I hooked up with some friends who were in the beauty world for magazines and uh, who I'd met through Moulton Brown. And I said, look, if ever you hear of any jobs going, will you let me know? Because I really, this whole magazine world is just where I want to be. And sure enough, their uh, job came up on a monthly magazine called Woman's Journal, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was a really nice kind of glossy monthly magazine. And they were looking for a junior and uh, and I went along and I guess that was a job interview because I didn't feel like it at the time. I went along, I had a cup of tea and they said, right, <laughs> you'll do. <laughs> uh, and and that's that's where I started. And I was very lucky. I was mentored. I was given an opportunity to write, started writing little paragraphs of copy that grew into bigger features. And I just I just found my slot, found where I really wanted to be. Did you have writing experience before you went into that? Or was that just something you picked up as you went along? I think I just picked it up. I, I mean, I've got English O-level back in the days when we did O-levels. But, but that was it. And I've always loved writing. Mm. And I, I was taught. I was, I was mentored. I was given little bits to write. And, and my editor would sit down with a sharpened pencil and go through it and go, actually, that's not great. And you need to refine this. And, yeah. and I, I picked it up quite quickly. And I loved it. And in fact, I love writing long form. So I moved from the magazine world into books quite quickly because I would rather write 70,000 words on a subject than, than 70 or 700. I find it quite hard to narrow it down because there's always so much to say, especially when you're investigating something in depth and I always want to give all the background and all the facts and figures and and justify what I'm doing to, to show that it is true it's real rather than just a little snippet of an opinion it's it's so interesting isn't it I, we we say often on the show that the people you meet will change your life and it seems because I'd, I'd not heard that story before of of the magazine and how it started and that uh, seems like that's laid the foundation for your entire career. Yeah, I, I was really lucky because when I started on that magazine, this is going back 35 years, because I'm a lot older than you might think. Um, I could certainly be your mum's. Um, I, 
was working in an area that was just beginning. So back in those days, women's magazines were full of knitting patterns and talk about lipsticks and, you know, how to cook your husband a lovely supper when he gets home from work. I mean, that, that was really the atmosphere. And when I started, there was, um, I think there was a medical editor who was a doctor and the, the beauty department when we wrote about lipsticks and things, um, and then the fashion department, which was all about comfy, elasticated waist skirts and, and, um, and knitting patterns and things like that. And then suddenly there were these new breed of wellness people, people, weird folk like nutritionists and, and aromatherapists and reflexologists and osteopaths and things that suddenly became known and this whole world of complementary medicine appeared. And there was nobody really to cover it on the magazine because that had never really happened before. Mm -hmm. And so because I was the, the newbie, and didn't really have much of a brief, they said, oh, Liz, you, you go and find out about this stuff. You know, there's somebody who wants to talk about omega-3s, whatever they are, and, and, you know, will you go and talk to these these people? So I went along, and I was just hooked from day one. I was completely fascinated by the thought that we could change how we look and how we feel by what we put into our bodies. And I'd had a long struggle with eczema. It was something, it was a trait that I, I was born with, I spent a lot of my young teenage life using steroid creams and, and was always very self-conscious, would always wear long sleeve clothes because I was aware of all these kind of scabby bits of skin on my arms. And I remember talking to a nutritionist who said, well, of course, you know, you need good quality fats in your diet. You know, you, you, you're missing your omega-3s. Where's your GLA? What are you eating? And I was like, well, I'm just eating, you know, regular food. It's like, and I don't really pay much attention to what I was eating. And I changed my diet and I started including many more beneficial fats. And this is back in the day when low fat was really being pushed. Mm -hmm. So we had people like Rosemary Connolly talking about the hip and thigh diet, which is let's strip all the fat out of our diets and we'll get really thin. Um, well, yes, up to a point that will happen. But what will also happen is your skin will fall apart because it'll become really dry and flaky and devitalized. And that's an outward sign of what's also going on inside because we need good healthy fats. We run on cholesterol and healthy fats that make our hormones and they're the kind of the building blocks of good nutrition. So I changed my diet. I began to see real changes in how I felt. And again, that was another light bulb moment that we can control so much of how we look and feel by the fuel that we eat. So I left the world of magazines and I wrote my first book, which was called Vital Oils. And it was written against this, uh, this whole culture of low fat. And so I was very counter that and saying, no, we need fat. We need good quality fats. We obviously don't need the trans fats, the hydrogenated fats, these low-fat hydrogenated spreads, um, names I won't mention, but have got sort of pictures of yellow flowers on them. It's, you know, it was very prevalent then that that's, that was the diet that was being pushed. And so I, I spent some time um, over in Harvard talking to some of the professors and the researchers over there. Because, of course, this is all pre-internet. Mm. Okay, this is pre-Google. In fact, my kids have said to me not long ago, how did you write a book without, without the internet? It's hard to imagine. <laughs> you know? And I said, okay, so um, I used to do this thing called going and talking to people um, and actually interviewing the real academics, turning up and having time with them. And you just can't beat that. 
you know, the University of Google does not provide you with all the answers. I would go and sit in the British Library and, and pull out research papers. And I'm quite old school, and I still am quite old school in, in that approach. And I don't trust what's online, and I always want to go back to the source and then not only look at what the source has said online, but actually talk to them, preferably ring them up or go and see them. But if not, at least have an email exchange. Because you need that authenticity. Very often you'll, you'll pick up a headline of a study, you then go and read the study and realise that actually that's not actually what the study said. And then you make contact with the author of the study who goes, yeah, and actually what we found after that was even more interesting. These right. were the mm -hmm. findings led us. So, so you can't beat that old school journalism. So I'm very grateful for, for that as, as a background. And then I just went on and wrote more and more books because I, I loved it so much. With that first book, how did that come about? So I had got a little bit of a name, I guess, from, from writing for magazines. So I had a little bit of a track record. And I just went to see a publisher and I said, I think this is a really important area. Nobody's really writing about it. And, uh, and will, you, will you give me a, a book contract? And I guess I was just a bit ballsy and back in the day when you, you're young and you think that, well, of course you can do this. Well, of course I can write a book. <laughs> and, and I guess it's that, that kind of courage and, um, I don't know, naivety of youth that just makes you think, well, yeah, I, I can do this. Just, just so do you not have that confidence anymore? That, like... I think I do, but I'm more aware that of what can go wrong yeah. and, and the fact that there are an awful lot of people out there. So, you know, why would you give it to me? Um, I think I'm more, yeah... I think you just become more aware of, of everything and therefore more aware of all the things that can go wrong as well as all the things that can potentially go right. I think what's interesting there is that everyone was doing the safe path of let me do dinners for husbands because that's what's selling. Let me, And then because you were the new person, it's like, okay, well, you go off and do this weird thing that we're not really sure what it is. And then that was actually what pushed your career forward. Yeah, and, and when I look back now, I mean, that was 35 years ago. And then from there, I went into daytime TV, and then I went, I started a beauty company, and then I did lots of other things. And now, coming back, I now have my own magazine. I've now continued writing books. I now podcast about all these great things. And it's all about wellness. And I'm, I just consider myself so fortunate because I'm right in the heart of well-being, which is the biggest consumer industry it's a 500 billion dollar industry I mean it's just massive and it has so many tentacles that spread everywhere and is perceived as something that's very new and fresh and forward-going and yet I've got a heritage that goes back you know decades with strong foundations saying listen I, I've not just picked this up as a trend this is something that it's in me it's part of my DNA it's it's what I do it's what I run on so I feel incredibly fortunate to be doing something that, in a way, I've always been doing, but is so new and fresh. What does the term well-being mean to you? I think it means feeling good, looking good and doing some good. I think it, it is those three things combined. And that's, that is the thread, the narrative that I try and run through everything. Um, feeling good in, in the sense of being well. You know, we know that we're living longer. 
our longevity is just increasing incrementally. I mean, it's extraordinary exponentially how how our lifespan and and you know we're solving so many things. You know, you've got stem cell treatments for cancers, you've got treatments for previously incurable diseases. You know, we are you know we're not dying of sepsis. We've not yet anyway. If we keep the superbugs away with our antibiotic <laughs> use, um, but you know there are many many more things in place that will keep us alive for longer. Our nutrition is far better. Our exercise routine tends to be better. So we are living longer, um, but there's no point in having years on our life unless we have those the life in our years to enjoy it. Because at the same time, you've also got the rise of mental health issues, dementia, Alzheimer's, and we don't want to be in a position where we're losing our minds later on and our bodies are going, but our minds have crumbled. So for me, it's all about finding ways to live well for longer. That's certainly a strong thread in what I do. Um, and also looking good. I come from a beauty background and I think, you know, looking good is all part of self-esteem. It's an outward reflection of how we may feel on the inside. I'm not obsessed about it. I don't think we should be striving for conventional beauty. I certainly never use the term anti-aging. I never have, even when I had a beauty company. Those words were banned. There's nothing wrong with aging. We want to be pro-aging. I mean, I want to be pro-aging. I mean, what's the alternative? Mm. If you're not aging, well, you're dying, so you're dead. So let's let's be let's bring it on. Aging, let's all age really well. Mm. So it's not getting hung up about the depth of our wrinkles or anything like that. But it's about being healthy and being full of vitality and having that kind of glow that that shines through everything you do. And then, of course, well-being in the biggest sense, well-being of the planet. How can we sustain our lives? How can we bring wellness to everyone? I spend a lot of time in East Africa and developing countries where, you know, well-being is a, is a true luxury because for them it's survival. And I think we need to really balance what we're doing here with our introspective, you know, should we be having the avocado on toast, you know, with or without the truffle oil, you know, and we, how do we then balance that with people who are just going to bed hungry and, and have so little. So it's about that getting the right balance, I think, in, in every area of our life. And that's why well-being is so fascinating, because you can stretch it in any which way you choose. You know, you can be very focused on food or fitness or exercise or medicine, um, or you can start implying it to the environment. I think the key word there is balance. I was part of a panel recently that was, and the whole theme was balance. And I was the only male in the room um, so it was oh. a, it was a all female panel bar me and everyone that turned up, um, bar one photographer was, was female. So, um, so I was a little bit outnumbered and I was sitting, <laughs> I was sitting in the fifth seat of the panel and there are five of us on the panel. So the moderator went down, went through the panel and asked every single person how they dealt with balance and if they had a problem with balance and overwhelmingly all four said, I, yeah, I really struggle with balance, um, being a mother, a wife, um, an entrepreneur, all of these different things that they were doing. They said they really struggled with balance. And then it got to me and I said, I don't really struggle with balance. And I got booed out of the room. <laughs> and then I was like, no, let me finish, let me finish. And I, and I said, I wonder if this is perhaps a, a problem that is affecting women more than it's affecting men in that you feel like you do have to be the perfect wife, the perfect mother. Everyone is looking at you relying on you for all of these different things and you have to look good while doing it yes. and <laughs> and for me I it's very much there's one thing on my list and then I do that thing and then I move on to the next thing 
And all of these women, these wonderful women on this panel were like, I wish I had, I, my list is I'm doing, I'm multitasking at all times. Um, have you ever struggled with balance and how do you wrestle with it? That is a really interesting question and you are absolutely spot on. And I don't know whether it's because women's brains are perhaps adapted in a way to have an ability to be more agile for multitasking because there is definitely that 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 goes on you know you can be the the ceo of the most amazing company um and you know work unbelievably long hours and incredibly hard and it's still your fault if there's no milk in the fridge you know when you get home because it, you know but that's just that's just what it is uh and I think I think we're getting better at shifting it. I mean, I've I've got three boys. I have five children, two girls, and, and three boys. And I I try and bring my boys up to to kind of co-share and be take responsibility. Um, and you know, if they say, "Oh well, you know, there's no milk," I go, "Oh well, better go and get some then." Or you know, did you not pick any up? Do you not think? Um, I mean, that's just a tiny example. But it, it is hard because women obviously. Um, get pregnant, give birth to the child, you know, you're very involved in the maternal rearing of that. And that will always be, you know, the main part of, uh, of family life if you, if you have children. And then you have to then fit your work in around that and then your relationships and then you tend to be the caregivers. And very much in you know, my generation is often the sandwich generation because we're looking after the the younger generation but then we may be looking after elderly parents as well so you know and you're stuck in the middle and where is the time for you and then how do you balance everything else in i think in terms of work it's really important to absolutely love what you do if you can you know um, because then that really helps with the balance you know, I, I don't feel out of balance because I genuinely am passionately so in love with what I'm doing that it doesn't seem like a struggle. I think things get out of balance when when they're a struggle and difficult and you're not enjoying it. I think yeah. you're, 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 you become much more resilient and better able to cope with, with change and, and difficult times and get that balance right when you're enjoying it. It's not to say that things don't go wrong and they're not difficult. They are, but I think you're better able to cope if, if you truly love what you do. We talk a lot at the moment. I think it's a, it's a topic that is trending at the moment is, is doing what you love. How do we be realistic about that? Because it is still work right? It's not always going to be easy and you have to love the hard things. Yeah. How do you love the hard things? I think you don't love the hard things themselves, but I think you have an, a knowledge and appreciation of what getting through them will achieve. So I think the thing is, is, is to fix your eyes on the prize. You know, where are you going? What do you really want to be doing? What's your objective? you know, getting up and thinking, okay, what's the objective? What do I really need to achieve? How do I need to, to get there? Once you know what your objective is, then you can work out your path, hopefully the path of least resistance to make it most straightforward to, to get to. But if you've got no idea what that objective is, then how, how are you ever going to kind of nav navigate your way through to it? So having a clear objective, I think, is is really good. And it doesn't have to be necessarily work related you know it could be some element of personal fitness or self-achievement or happiness or relationship or whatever it is but you've got to have that really clear objective in order to be successful in making your way towards it 
What's your objective? What's my objective? I have many. How long have you got? (laughs) (laughs) I think um, my objective, I was thinking about this because I was writing a piece for my magazine about 2020. And, you know, one of the questions I'm always asked is, you know, what are your New Year's resolutions? What are you giving up? And blah, blah, blah. And actually, I'm not very good about giving stuff up. I, I believe in adding stuff in. So I'm, I think that's much more positive than saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. I think you switch it and say, I am actively going to do this instead or start doing the other. And I, I was actually listening to um, something that uh, Melinda Gates had written, the Gates Foundation, obviously, you know, mega wealthy, supremely capable you know, the world is her oyster. And she says that she chooses a word for each year. And that's her objective as as to what she's going to try and achieve. And she's chosen various different things over the years. Grace, I think, was one. Kindness was another. And I was thinking, okay, so if I was going to choose a word for my objective for 2020, what would it be? And actually, uh, my word is joy. And I think um, we don't have enough joy around us. And I think we can we can make our own joy. We can look for joy in the, in the little things and the big things. And we can give joy as well as seek it for ourselves. And, you know, I've had a, a hard few years in, in lots of ways. And as I'm sure everybody listening has as well, life is not easy. And it's not all that lovely Instagram perfectness that we only show the good stuff. And I would like to get a bit more joy. And so joy out of work, take the stress out a little bit and enjoy at home and just kind of generally lighten up a bit I think I'm sometimes in danger of just being a little bit too heavy having that word it can it will change your year because if you're always driving towards kindness you're going to have a different year to if you're driving towards happiness or if you're driving towards money or whatever whatever word you choose for the year will will shape that year it's really interesting so and and I just you know I'm just going to keep it in my mind that whatever I do um how is this spreading joy how is this creating joy you know joy is such a positive word has no negative connotations to it at all I mean and, and it can apply to everybody and it's just putting a smile on somebody's face or on your own face and you know we know that even simple things like stretching our mouths into a smile even a fake smile even if we don't actually feel like it you know pulling the corners of our mouths upwards and, and back that the, the physical trigger to our brain creates happy chemicals and endorphins in our brain so even if you get up and the first thing you do is you look in the mirror and you give yourself a huge smile um it's I mean, it just might make you feel silly and make you smile because you're doing it. And you think that just looks so ridiculous. But you are actually creating happy chemicals in the brain, which then links on to our immunity, which links to our mental health. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. That happened to me this morning. So uh, this morning I woke up and um, my girlfriend was having a bad day and she had a little cry. And uh, I thought, so normally when I get in the shower, I put music on. And so instead of putting what I normally put on, I put on a Disney playlist because I knew it would make her laugh and it would get out of bed. And my, we then sung Disney songs for the next half an hour. My Fun. mood, working, walking to work, yeah. was so much happier than if I'd just put my normal tunes on because yeah. we'd just been silly and just sung bloody Kuna Matata around the house. It's just ridiculous. I'm a great believer in just being silly. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, be more silly. <laughs> um, so you talked there about 
the the effects that just smiling will have on your brain and obviously you've you've done a lot of research around neuroscience and when you were initially sort of in the in the times where everyone was reporting that low fat diets were the key and you were saying you were going against the grain yeah, mm-hmm. were you were you getting a lot of resistance I did have some resistance yes um I was nearly sued by a big multinational for daring to suggest that the hydrogenated low-fat trans fats in spreads could be damaging to health. And now, of course, they've all been removed and replaced. And it's like, what, trans fats? No, no, we yeah. would never use those. <laughs> like, actually, you did, guys. And you told us they were really good for us, which is why we're so confused. Um, so, so yeah, there, there were some slightly scary moments. But I think for me, I'm just a communicator. You know, I I don't do this research. I go and find the people who are the great brains and who are doing the research. And what I I, I feel that my role is is like a megaphone. I'm just an amplifier. And very often you'll find these extraordinary researchers who, you know, whose life's work is, you know, one particular metabolic pathway. I mean, they are just so forensic in their knowledge. And very often they are super keen to share it. And they are really delighted when somebody takes an interest and says, look, come and I'd love to know more about this, will you? But I'm not a scientist, so you're going to have to explain it to me really simply. You're going to have to use really basic language because, you know, I didn't even get my maths O-level. I mean, I'm really not an academic. So as long as I can understand it, if you talk to me in such a way that I can understand it, I can then go and write it up and convey it to other people and hopefully, you know, spread the message that you're, that you're working in and your ivory towers and, and you, you know, your great brains... Um, and they're often not the best communicators. And yet I feel I'm the intermediary that then takes that information and then can pass it on in hopefully inaccessible and in an interesting way. So in terms of having being robust, I, I think that that's a great benefit. So I love busting myths. There's a, a big one that I've been on recently, which is all about HRT and it's linked with breast cancer. And I've been busting that myth big time. And that's not me. That's not my research. That's talking to the eminent professors and the scientists who've been leading this globally and who aren't getting the oxygen of publicity to get the story and the message out there. And I can do that and I can wave that flag knowing that I've got this huge you know, backdrop of medical weight and authority behind me. It's not me. It's I'm relying on them to then come forward and say, no, no, this is totally right. You know what Liz has said and how she's explaining it is is the truth. So HRT being hormone replacement therapy, yeah. there people are saying that that causes breast cancer. There was a study back in 2002, the Women's Health Initiative. And basically what happens is when you hit your 40s as a woman, um, your estrogen levels start to decline. So women are fueled by estrogen. You know, it's the fuel in our tank. For guys, it's more testosterone. For women, it's more estrogen. And when our childbearing years are are dwindling and coming to an end, so our estrogen supplies diminish. And the thing about estrogen is that it circulates around the entire body. So people tend to think of it as just something that's produced in the ovaries and it's very localised to the pelvis, but not a bit of it. We've got estrogen receptors in our brains, we have them in our bones, we have them in our ears, our eyes, everywhere. So when estrogen starts to decline which happens generally around sort of early to mid-40s, 
as a woman, you can start to get all kinds of weird things happening. You might start to get headaches, you know, really bad migraine-type headaches. You might start to feel anxious or have low mood or instance of depression. And way, way too many women go to the GP with this, and they are wrongly prescribed antidepressants when they should be prescribed oestrogen. Because if your low mood and anxiety is caused by low levels of oestrogen, just numbing it with an antidepressant... That's not going to fix it. This is going to make you feel numb and you just frankly don't care that you're depressed. So topping up your oestrogen is the only thing that will bring that mood back up if it's caused by low oestrogen. Same with um, achy joints. A lot of women give up sport or exercise or fitness because their joints are aching and they, they go off and see rheumatologists or think they've got arthritis or whatever. And actually it's because the oestrogen is coming out of their bones. So... This one study, so back in the day, lots of women used to take HRT. It was just like the normal thing. You'd go to your doctor and they'd go, yeah, mid-40s, there you go. You'll feel a load better. You'll start to sleep well and you'll feel better and you'll be fitter and better protected against heart disease and all these things. Um, Then there was one study in 2002 which basically skewed data linking um, taking high levels of oestrogen with an increased rate in breast cancer. And for many, many reasons, which I go into at length um, on as our well-being, the data was wrong. <clears throat> and it used a much older demographic of women, often in their 70s, who were very overweight, who were smokers, all these risk factors for breast cancer. <laughs> you know, it was just, it was a nonsense. And also using the older style of HRT. In the old days, it used to be mostly oral through tablets. Now it's gels and patches, which is much, much safer. It doesn't go through the liver. It's not metabolized. So it's it's a really super safe way of taking it. Um, and yet this study persists. It hit the media. Lovely, you know, Daily Mail. Good old Daily Mail headlines. <laughs> You've got to love it, haven't you? You know, you know, HRT causes breast cancer. Immediately, there was this massive panic. And it was a perfect storm because it was at the beginning of the summer. All the academics who had been part of the study had broken up from their various universities. There was nobody available for a statement. Mm. These authors have since publicly apologised for for the way that this was misreported. And so I've worked alongside many, many doctors and medics to try and get this message across because GPs are not being trained. This is another big scandal. GPs will do, you know, seven to nine years of medical school training. Any GPs out there or being trained going through medical school, you know, do tell me if I'm wrong in this, because according to my latest research, there is still no compulsory training on menopause. So they'll do maybe three months on obstetrics and and gynecology. Not every woman's going to have a baby. Every woman will have a menopause. Mm -hmm. And as we get older, we're having to live longer and work longer through it. And we need to be better able to do that. So it's, you know, it's a real cost. It's a human cost, but it's also a cost of business and a cost of relationships and all sorts of things as to why we need to have a better understanding of hormone health for midlife women. So I've become a, a bit of a, a campaigner. I do love a nice campaign, actually. I've, I've always had a campaign on the go over, over the years, whether it's food labeling or... Um, or healthcare, or, or, or you know, high fats in, in your diet, or whatever. I mean, that, organics and regenerative agriculture. Lots and lots of different things I've, I've campaigned for over the years. But this is something that has really stuck because there is a big health injustice happening with women, and it's costing women and society a fortune. And it, it just needs to be changed. And unfortunately, The Lancet went and reprinted a study that was uh, again picked up in the media recently. So I've been quite busy 
going on lots of you know TV shows and radio programs, you know, putting the the counter the case and saying why this study was wrong. Um, and actually, HRT is is very protective, protects against colon cancer, it protects against Alzheimer's, type two diabetes, osteoarthritis. Um, osteoporosis cuts your risk of coronary heart disease in half you know seriously yeah. you know any guy who's connected to a woman um you know be it mother grandmother aunt sister colleague friend literally if you see signs of changing in mood anxiety um achy joints headaches just lack of sleep the interesting story with oprah winfrey um I don't know why I said Winfrey, because there is only one <laughs> Oprah. I mean, it's just a first name, isn't it, really? Oprah. She obviously has this massive TV show. She's mega influential, you know, mega wealthy, has access to anybody in the world, doesn't she? I mean, who's not going to take a call from Oprah? And she started to get heart palpitations. So her heart would beat really fast. So she was in her mid-40s. So she spoke to all the cardiologists went to see everybody, I mean, literally the top, top, yeah. you know, Harvard, Stanford guys specialising in heart conditions, had all these checks, ECGs, whatever, clear, nothing, couldn't find anything wrong. And it was only when she had a woman on her show who started talking about menopause and symptoms and saying, well, of course, you know, one of the symptoms is a racing heartbeats, a vasomotor symptom, and it said, hold on a minute, what do you mean racing heartbeat and menopause? And she said, yeah, as your estrogen declines, you'll start to get, you know, heart palpitations. So she, of course, then immediately um, went down the drains looking at all the research and uh, and started taking HRT. She, you know, her life was turned around. She felt totally transformed and rejuvenated and she's become also quite a crusader for it. But it's, so, you know, if you know of people who, you know, who just have all kinds of, different symptoms. I used to get tinnitus in my 40s, in my ears, and I was really concerned that I was going to have to live with this condition. It's a horrid thing. If you know know somebody who's got it, it's dreadful. You can't escape it, you know, morning, noon, and night. It's just there with you. Since taking HRT, it's gone. Why? Because we have estrogen receptors in our inner ear. And, of course, they go out of balance if they're lacking in the estrogen. So there's just so many things. I could do a whole podcast. Well, I have done many, many <laughs> podcasts just on HRT, so I'll, I'll stop boring you. I'll shut up about that now. No, it's, it's fascinating. Um, thank you for um, answering that. Um, is print dead? Love that question. Um, everyone said print was dead. And when I started my magazine, we started it online. We started it, it'll be four years ago, um, just now. And I thought, like everybody, let's not bother with print. We'll go straight into online. Everyone can download it. Everyone's got a phone or an iPad or whatever. So that's where we started. And and when we got to our kind of second edition, uh, we were just getting a lot of calls and emails and questions from people saying, love your magazine, Liz, but could we please have it in print? And there's something about, you don't curl up on the sofa with an iPad, do you, and just sort of scroll mm. through it. You, you, there's a tangibility to it. And for me, my background as a journalist is in print. And I love being able to pick up and flick through something that is real. And I think there's an important point here. I'll come back to your question about whether it's dead or not. But I think as a source of credible information... We have to be really careful when we print stuff because it has to be accurate. You know, we mustn't libel anybody. It can't be inaccurate because once this thing has gone to print, 
That's it. It's out there. I can't nip online, go into back of house and change it because I suddenly realised, oops, got that wrong. Never mind. Quick, quick. <laughs> it's changed. Never mind. No, you know, no, no harm done. And that's why, um, you know, writing a book and I, you know, I've written a lot of books. So, you know, when I give my manuscript into a publisher, the first thing they do is they get it legaled because they don't want to get sued either, that they're printing something that's defamatory or untrue. So there is a real credibility and authority to print that you don't get with online. I did an interview for a very reputable Sunday newspaper who shall remain nameless recently, and they should have known better. And we trusted them because they've got, a, you know, it was a good journalist, it was a good reputation. Interview came out in print um, and online, and uh, and there were two major major errors, which you know was very upsetting for me, because people read it and they think it's true, yeah. and, and it wasn't true. And when we confronted them on it, they were just so laid back. It was like, oh, don't worry, we'll just hop online and change it. So it's almost as if the the journalists now are having to to rush so quickly to keep up because the pace has got so fast there isn't the time for fact checking there isn't the time often to go back to the source and to just check really whether this is absolutely right and there's also that knowledge in the back of your mind that do you know what if it's not true it doesn't really matter because we can hop on and change it if somebody calls us out on it we'll just change it mm. so I always say to, to my team particularly when they're researching stuff if you can find the printed source because it's likely to be so much more accurate so that's the first thing about why I love print and why I think people should trust it but interestingly consumer magazines are struggling you know we're, we're now published by Hearst so we see a lot of their data and, yeah, if you look at the industry as a whole, consumer magazines are down. However, there are a few significant exclusions. Um, and I'm pleased to say that our magazine is, is doing well. We're 35% up year on year, which is, you know, real bucking the trend. If you are a niche magazine and if you are producing something that's high quality that you can't get anywhere else, you will do well. So, for example, one of the, the most popular titles at Hearst at the moment is Runner's World. Because if you're a runner, yeah. you're going to buy Runner's World. You're going to want to know what's going on in the world of running and you're going to want to sit down on the sofa or whatever and, and flick through something that you are tuned into. And I think the same is, is true of us. If you want something that is beautiful and inspirational, that looks lovely, that's it's a bit of me time, isn't it? It's an inexpensive treat. It, in the scheme of things, it doesn't cost that much. It's the same price as a... you know couple of cappuccinos and you've got it there for for at least a month or two to to use and to flick through and enjoy and it's just that little bit of escapism which I don't think you get through through digital I mean I think digital is great I think having your online mag as well is great because you've got that as an option in your pocket always to refer to but you can't beat that tangibility of print so no I don't think it's dead I think it's being re-engineered and refocused and I think the magazines that are struggling are the ones that focus on things like news and gossip, mm. because how can you stay current yeah. when you've got all, you know, At you've got everything. Media, yeah. it, it's just, you know, I, I feel sorry for the fashion industry because, you know, the minute they put out a fashion show, it's like, you know, it can be copied in, in China in the next, you know, three or four hours and, and be out there. And, and I was talking to a, a, a friend who's a news journalist and they're saying the problem now for the news journalists is you've got, you know, people like Trump tweeting from the closed meetings 
about what's going on. So whereas before you would wait as a journalist until all these guys come out of their big powwows and then there'd be the media briefing and then the journalists would go away and write about it, they're not even being given that opportunity now because the news is being made by the guys in the meeting before they've even stepped foot outside and, and confronted the microphones. Nothing. Isn't it? <laughs> so they're creating the news. They are the news, but they're also creating it. Yeah. Which is a bit mm. of a tricky situation. Yeah. 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 Um, so I suppose you're a media company now, really. Oh, my goodness. That sounds really grand, doesn't it? It is. I think it's uh, what it is. Content, well, what content, I love content. about disruptive technology, and you guys know this you know, far better than me, is when I started in media, and I, I went into daytime television quite early on in my career when it first started back in the day, and we were just at the mercy of the programme schedulers and the controllers. And I, I managed to get a daytime TV show of my own in the afternoon called Lizelle's Lifestyle, um, which was like a kind of well-being big brother that was filmed in my home in Putney. It was mad. And again, you know, that was something that was commissioned by the ITV network controllers. So, you know, I had to go cap in hand and talk to them and persuade them to do it. Now I've got a YouTube channel. So it's like, great, you want to watch me at home? You want to see what we're doing? You know, click on. Um, I'd love to do more radio. I love the spoken word. And partly because I can sit there in my, my pyjamas. And, although <laughs> you guys are filming, you know, that's, that's, that's not fair, is it? But, you know, a lot of um, radio, again, you're at the mercy of the commissioning editors and, and the controllers and the schedulers. I podcast like you guys, and I love it, that the, the fact that we can have, we can make our own programmes and we can speak directly to those who want to listen to us. So I love the fact that, that yes, I think, I think many of us can be our own media companies. I mean, I happen to have a magazine as well. But yes, I think being, being back in the media and having a voice, what a thrill, what a joy, to use that lovely word. <laughs> it's, it's so crazy to me that pirate radio was even a thing, that we were just broadcasting and that was deemed we were shut down and, and people were... I mean, prosecuted and yeah. chased and it got really, really dark for certain people who were having pirate radio stations. You're so right, just for having a voice on the airwaves, which now we all have. Everybody yeah. who's got a smartphone in their pocket can have a voice. It's insane. Thank, thank goodness we're where we are. So have you, I mean, we obviously are so thrilled with the podcast format. Like We just want to talk yeah. about it all the time. So how have, how have you found your podcast journey? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I came to it um, slightly reluctantly. I was actually led to it by my millennial team. Who... So, you, so you've got a mix of... Uh, yeah, so, so my, my team tends to be quite split. I've got older people like me um, in their kind of 50s who've been around a block and have got some experience and some wisdom, um, perhaps. And then a load of lovely 20-somethings who are just, you know, so creative and so energised and so on it and bringing all these new ideas to the fore. It's a great mix, actually, that intergenerational mix. I love the way it plays up and down with the share of knowledge. And so uh, a few years ago, um, my, it was my food and travel editor, Emma, said to me, you know, you really should be doing a, a podcast. I said, oh, what's a, what's a pod thing? And she said, well, it's like a radio show. And I said, oh, okay. Not really sure about that, um, but okay, if you, know, if you think it's a good thing, then I'll, I'll give it a go. And my daughter, Lily, was working with me as my digital editor, and she was saying, yep, come on, we, you know, we can do this, we can record it. So we recorded a few, and we had no idea that it would just really, really take off. I mean, we've had you know, a million downloads. It's, it's extraordinary. And that's really without pushing it, to be honest. It was just like this little sideline. 
And I realised very quickly that I love it because it's all about content. And I think all of us are slightly over the, the kind of Instagram vlogger, oh, let's have a look here in my bedroom and unpack this box of stuff and, and you know talk about it without any knowledge. The thing about a podcast is that you have to have something to say. I mean, it sounds really obvious, but, <laughs> but you know, it is about content. If someone's going to give you the opportunity to talk to them in their ears, I mean, what a privileged position. So let's make the most of it. Let's make sure that what you're saying is actually worthy of that time, that precious bit of time that they're giving up. So that's the first thing. So it's all about content, what you say and how you say it. So, you know, here you've got you've got great equipment. It's all very carefully done. You've got your sound blankets up. You know, it's a real, it's a very considered thing. It's not just, you know, sitting in your bedroom with a, with a phone. Um, you know, you need to make sure there's good production values and having interesting people, hopefully talking about interesting things. So for me, it's become a bit of a newly acquired passion and we are doing more. So I started, with, I have this series called Wellness with Lizelle, and that's where I normally talk to an expert for about 40 minutes or so. Great guy we had on recently, a neuroscientist called Dr. Simon Dial, talking about brain fats. You've got to listen to this. Yeah, it's really, really good. It's all about the role of DHA in our brains, how important it is from babyhood to, to old age, and where we get these fats from and how they're used in the body. I mean, honestly, seriously, anybody who has a brain needs to listen to that episode then uh, Lily said to me because um, we do those in blocks of series of about 10 or so and then she said you know uh, you should do a little snippety thing that's just you um, so why don't you just pick kind of like five things and do it on a Friday have it as the Friday five a little roundup of the week so that's now what I, I do I normally record that um, on my own in my bedroom <laughs> on a, with a nice bit of kit but you know it is just me talking for about 10 minutes about things that have caught my eye um, or grabbed me or a bit controversial or it gives me a chance to stand on my proverbial soapbox and shout about stuff that isn't <laughs> right uh, and actually that has had a, even higher ratings than than our longer form podcast, which was a big surprise. Yeah. And so what we're doing now is in the new year, we're putting a bit more money into the podcast and we're going to rebrand it as the Lizard Wellbeing Show. And we're moving to slightly bigger studios and we are going to film it. Amazing. I'm going to be taking notes about your amazing setup here. So it's incredible to me that people actually listen to their podcast on YouTube so that they can just don't understand I watch do. it. You do, do that, yeah. Adam. I don't really use the podcast app. I will always You'd have like it. You'd like to watch visual, and yeah. see. I mean, it's nice, I guess, to see so, the person who's talking. So for me, like, I, because I generally listen to stuff when I first get up in the morning. So I'll be doing other things as that's happening. So I'll like play on the TV or something. And so the video will be there. And I'll be kind of like watching it for a bit, then I'll go and make some coffee and I'll be doing some work. So I'll half listen to it, half watch it. But I like to have that thing to look at. I think even when I've got audiobooks, I don't know if it's like, I don't know if it's because I'm dyslexic or just the way that I process things, but I would like to have something to look at. So even when I'm with an audiobook, I, if I just sit there and there's nothing going on and I close my eyes, I'm like, oh, I can't cope with this. I need something. That visual visually. stimulation. Yeah. Then. And I guess it is all about authenticity as well, because you can really see, you know, what, what that person is like. You can look them in the eye. Do they look shifty? Do I, look, you know, do, do I trust <laughs> yeah. them? I guess for me, I was trying to get away from the pressures, particularly as a woman, 
of, you know, what does she look like? Let's put some makeup on. You know, I've just kind of scraped my hair back today. Is that actually going to look okay? You know, what am I wearing? You know, it's just another pressure that takes you away from actually what should be the focus, which is the content mm -hmm. and actually what you're saying and how you're saying it. Um, but Yeah, I, I used to think like that. Um, when I'd started recording them of, of like, oh, I better make sure I'm wearing something nice and stuff. I just don't bother anymore because I have realized that actually no one cares and it is just about the content and you could be... You say no one cares, but as, you know, as a midlife woman working in wellbeing, there'll, there'll be a screen grab that will end up on the Daily Mail, you know, sidebar oh, of shame online mm -hmm. going, oh, look how she's let herself go and, you know, talk about wellbeing. She looks like an old bag. And, you know, so there is, there is that added pressure always, unfortunately. It's awful. I mean, maybe as a guy, I just don't feel that. But I just, I just feel. Also, no one's putting us in the Daily Mail. Yeah, and I suppose our, our thing isn't. <laughs> Hopefully, I'll be shut down by. So. Oh, that's never going to be shut down, yeah. is it? But um, I, I suppose, yeah, I suppose because our content isn't about well-being or beauty yeah. or anything yeah. like that. No one's watching it for how beautiful me and Adam are. And I mean, <laughs> I'm so they, they, should, they should be tuning in just a swoon. Basically. <laughs> um, you are very open to sort of mentoring um, young entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. What do you find is kind of their major hang ups? What is it that most people, their problems that they're coming to you with? Um, so many. Um, I mean, I think. A lot of people have really good ideas, but it's then how do you translate that idea in, into the reality? Mm. Um, I think getting access to good information is a lot easier than it has been. I mean, when I started my various different brands back in the day, we didn't have such a thing as mentoring. I mean, we didn't even use the word entrepreneur. I mean, that, that's a relatively recent word, to be honest. We didn't talk about brand founders or brand building. You were just a business person actually you were usually a businessman and uh, hmm. I said, oh look oh look there are some girls over there wanting to do it you know so you know it was a very different landscape um so I think you know my advice is always to go out and get as much help as you can I was with a great accelerator academy last night actually called Resurgo and they are looking at sustainable businesses and amplifying sustainability and social impact businesses that are doing some good and I think that's that's really key you've got to have that as part of your your brief because I think people want to invest time and money um, whether as an investor or as a consumer or buyer of your product in a brand that they believe is is making a tangible difference somewhere along the line because there's so much choice out there why wouldn't you want to go with the guys who are making a better difference so I think that's that's really key but I think ultimately you've got to be so beyond passionate about what you do because it's tough it's really hard and if it goes well it will consume you night and day it will it will you'll be working 24 7 it will it may well be financially incredibly draining you know you may be mortgaging your house or you know giving up all sorts of other things to to fund what you believe in it's the thing that you've got to be so passionate about that you know, on that wet Wednesday morning when you've got to get up at half past three to catch that early train or that plane for that meeting or whatever, you don't mind doing it because you know that it's it's for the greater good and it's building something really, really important. 
And you need to have that passion that will give you that resilience when things get really tough later on. Because they will do. Everything goes up and down. There are always problems. There's always unexpected um, items that will be in your bagging area that you'll need to deal with. So, yeah, so passionate. It's not enough just to say, do you know, I quite fancy doing this. Anybody says that, that's like that's like a red flag. It's like, no, 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 no. Step away from this idea now because it's really, you are just going to be doomed to failure. You have to be somebody who says, I cannot not do this. I am so beyond driven to do this. It's making such a difference to me, to my customers, to my team. I have to do it and I will do it at any price almost. Amazing. I, I guess you feel like that about your work too, yes? Oh, completely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, and it is crazy that it's nine years on and that you still feel the same. And we had this conversation last night the fact that we're the rest of the day today, we're going to be putting together a talk that we're giving tomorrow on the weekend. And we were just talking about how it's, yeah, we're still doing, I mean, nine years ago, it was suitcases full of paint on the train off to middle of nowhere to paint an ice cream van or something just crazy yeah, random, yeah. all of these weird things that we've done. And now it's now that the speaking and all of that sort of stuff is starting to take off. It's, it's going off to this, to Adam's old university, which is going to be weird for him being <laughs> yeah. back there. Um, and, and delivering, a. I mean, we've gone from our comfort zone, which is delivering a 45 minute talk to now we're there all day, um, with just a bunch of students just teaching them all of this stuff. And it's, it's a, real, a real leap for us. But it's the same drive. It's the yeah. same determination. And Beans and noodles, we call it. Because that's when we Beans first... Beans and noodles. Beans and noodles. Because when we started, we had nothing. No money. It was just that drive. And we were living yeah. on beans and noodles. So it's like, that. that's what our beans and noodles is now. Just... Yeah, it doesn't ever go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good, and 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 it needs to. You you need to keep that passion, that fire. It's fun. That I mean, is we, what sustains you, and we, it is fun. Yeah, I mean, we. Um, I mentioned we've been talking to an adventurer recently, and he talked about the two types of fun: type one fun and type two fun. And type one fun is your obvious roller coaster, and type two fun is the stuff that doesn't feel fun in the moment. Is only fun in retrospect when you look back on it, and. It's so funny how I crave the days of when we when it was awful, <laughs> like we had no money and we we're in this cold little garage because it was so fun and we had this thing that we were building towards and it was we were in amongst it and it's really nice being back there again with with the podcast and all of this newness that's yeah. coming up of like building something very else raw, new. From very the real. There is something about that. I I absolutely feel that having obviously co-founded a beauty company that became so huge and you know with hundreds and hundreds of people and you know kind of global ambitions and all of this to then going back into startup mode because i mean you you sold the company yeah and now, that was sold I mean, back in 2010 and in theory you could be on a beach somewhere oh, sitting under a tree yeah, yeah totally yeah. yeah yeah with a pina colada and what what yeah. is it that makes you not go and do that to go back to beans and noodles. I just think I am very driven and I'm passionate about it. And I do genuinely believe that there are important messages to get out there. And I think that we can make small changes to the way we live that make a big difference into how we feel, to mental health, to well-being. I guess, I don't know whether it's because I'm a mum, I've got five kids, I'm passing on those messages to them. I just feel that there are important messages to get out there. Um, I... I I'm passionate about social justice and there is a lot of injustice out there 
And I think there's a lot of scaremongering and mythology and misleading information. There's a lot of greenwashing. Um, I see that in healthcare, in environment, in, in food, in food labelling, in agriculture, you know, all these things. And I think if I can be a totally impartial, unbiased voice, that I'm all I'm interested in is evidence-based information. That is bottom line. That's what it's about. You cannot bribe me. I, I do not need your cash. Um, I don't have a, a very lavish lifestyle. I sold my beauty company. It's great. You know, I can fund the magazine. I can run my charity. I can do other things. Um, I was talking to uh, one of my team the other day, and there was this particular brand that I don't like for various ethical reasons. And uh, and she said, so, you know, so what happens? They come in with 100 grand's worth of sponsorship. Do we take it? And I said, of course we don't take it. You know, I mean, it's just like you cannot buy your way in here. You know, we will feature brands and amplify them if we think that they're great and they're good partners and they're doing the right thing and it's what they're saying is valuable or useful um, and that's a very unusual position to be in I don't know of any other publication that would that would turn down a sum like that from somebody just because they didn't think that ethically they were behaving in the right way but we have that ability to do that so that's you know I really value that and I think it's important and it's useful and hopefully it will continue to grow and and, and be valued by others too. I think we have the same thing and it's a duty of care to your audience. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I won't say any more then. <laughs> <laughs> um, this was amazing. I haven't got to half of the uh, the things on my notes, um, so I maybe we'll do a, a part two at some point. But this has been so fun. Thank you so really much nice. for coming in. Really nice. Thank you. Thank um, you for letting me chat. Where can people find you online? I'm com. So that's the website. Um, I love Instagram because it's just nice, friendly, warm people. I find Twitter a bit shouty and scary. Um, <laughs> but you'll find me at Lizelle Me if you want to connect with me. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. If you get any value from these episodes, it would mean the world to us if you could share the podcast with someone who needs it. You can always reach out to us on Instagram at rebelscreate or head over to creativerebels.co. And remember, always be creating. See ya.